The title of our Bible study today is The Last Supper and the Coming Passion of Jesus. It's my goal to do two things in this Bible study this morning. So it's sort of a bifurcated lesson, and I'm hoping to be able to accomplish these tasks, so I'm going to probably move just a little bit fast for some of you, and uh, I pray that I can manage this well. We're going to do two things, and first we're going to spend a little time talking about the Last Supper, that is the Lord's Supper, communion, as it is often called, which most of us were here yesterday evening in the evening hours, and we, as darkness was following, we celebrated the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And a little later on in this Bible study, we're going to shift gears and, and look at the, the days of, of the week. Look at the, the timeline of important events that are connected to the passion of Jesus Christ, as it is sometimes referred to. I believe many of you are aware that this was a, uh, an intense period of several days involved between the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to look a little bit about that, that timeline and talk about the the, the events and how they flowed and when, what happened, where, and so forth and so on. But for now, let's begin this morning by looking at the, the Last Supper and, and really try to focus on a little bit about the theology that's associated with the Last Supper. <clears throat> now, our beginning point is that we need to connect baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, it turns out that, that these two very highly profiled sacraments in the Christian church in the tradition of our faith in Western Christianity, these two sacraments are connected, and they're connected in a covenantal way. They're integrally linked, and this sets them apart as being very high profile among the sacraments of the church. <clears throat> so in sh to, to, to kind of get into this topic quickly, let me just start by saying this. Baptism, water baptism, that is the right of entry by which an individual joins a group. Now, the individual is joining a group, and that group we, we can call theologically and biblically the body of Christ. That is, the church. The body of Christ is the church. Paul uses that phrase, the body, or the body of Christ, in such a way that I believe his readers intuitively and automatically understood he's talking about the church. Um, sometimes when we read Paul's writings, we hear the phrase, the body of Christ, and we think it's talking about his physical body. Typically, Paul will give us textual clues to let us know whether or not he's talking about the physical body of Christ, because it may use the word flesh, or uh, whether he's talking about the, the body of believers. But we'll, we'll kind of catch up on that here in a few minutes. So baptism is the rite of entry by which an individual joins the group, the body of Christ. And the Lord's Supper that is communion, the Last Supper, that is a rite by which this group communally and periodically renews the covenant. The covenant is renewed by the group. The group comes together, very much like Jesus had his group of disciples that were together, and together they renewed the covenant that they had previously joined as individuals through water baptism to become part of Christ's body, the church, the group. And so one is an individual rite, an individual sacrament. The other one is a communal, I mean that in a positive sense, so we're not communists around here, <laughs> a communal celebration, a communal sacrament. Now this has a parallel in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, you had an individual rite, an individual sacrament, so to speak. And by the way, the word sacrament doesn't appear in the Bible. That doesn't make it a good word or a bad word. It just means it's just a word that was coined in the early centuries by St. Augustine to help us to understand certain concepts. So he coined this word, and it's certainly a biblical word, uh, even though it doesn't appear in Scripture. But essentially, in the Old Covenant, you had a, a rite which was called circumcision. And circumcision was the rite of entry into the group. That is, the, the body of Israel, the covenant body. You were, as an individual, as, a, as an infant, the little boy was brought into a covenant relationship 
into the group by the rite of circumcision. And then, with the passing of time, there were communal functions of the group. The group together communally functioned and did something to renew that covenant. And those, the two annual communal sacrifices, and these are communal, not individual sacrifices, but communal group sacrifices that were actually commanded and required was Passover and atonement. At Passover, everyone was commanded as a group. Everybody was doing it. You took the lamb out of the flock and you had your Passover sacrifice and celebration and you ate of the lamb. And then on the Day of Atonement, we had two goats. One was released into the wilderness and one was slain. And that was a communal thing. It was commanded. Everybody did it all at the same time. So we have a parallel in the Old Testament with the New Testament in terms of this covenantal thinking by which you have a right of entry and then you have a renewal of that covenant. Does does this make sense? I, I think it does, and I hope you can follow what I'm saying. So this is the logic of the theology behind the Lord's Supper, communion, what we would call it here. So we see that sac- circumcision was a single event. It, was a, it happened once. You can't be sac- circumcised more than once. <laughs> At least I certainly wouldn't want to be. <laughs> so is baptism. It's a singular event. But the rites of renewal are repeated twice annually, every year, as a commandment. So thus, in the sense that circumcision was a prerequisite to, the, to entering into the covenant, so baptism. Baptism is a prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. So this is the logic behind, and of the theology behind it. And in, in essence, we could say, and I think it's quite correct to say, you can't renew a covenantal relationship that you have not first entered. So several years ago, Julie and I had a renewal of our marriage vows. Well, in order to renew our vows, we had to be married at the first. Right? I can't renew my marriage vows until I first get married. All right. And we can renew our marriage vows as frequently as we care to. All right? So that's what's really happening here. So just to uh, underscore what I've explained to you now with a few Bible passages, uh, let's go to the New Testament, the writings of St. Paul. Now, Paul is, our, is really the premier theologian of the New Testament, setting aside, of course, Jesus. But Paul is the, uh, the, the premier theologian. He's the man who's going to help us out with many of these concepts. And Paul is a conceptual man. So anytime you're reading the writings of Paul, remember, Paul likes concepts. He likes big ideas. And these big concepts and these abstract ideas, he takes these and then he tries to bring them down to reality. The, many of the other New Testament writers are kind of straightforward. You can just... But Paul is the abstract man. He's the concept guy. He's the big idea man who has these big ideas that he uses to to develop the theology of the New Testament church. And so we need Paul, and Paul's writings are thus a little bit harder to understand sometimes, and thus a little bit easier for people to, uh, to misinterpret. All right, so if we start in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7, we have... Excuse me, that's verse 27. Paul simply says this, and there are other places we could go. He says, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have been put on Christ. Pastor, here you go. So, baptism is the entry, right, into the covenant. And then we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's read verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, the cup of blessing which we bless... Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So the word body there is being used to describe a covenant body, the the church. And really, in the New Testament concept, we have a, a church universal, yes, But when the readers of the New Testament read this, they understood this in a little bit of a practical sense as well. That they understood this in a congregational sense. All right, as a congregational sense, I was part of a body. Each congregation is sort of an an organ of the larger body, and you got to be 
You've you got to be connected to the body, of which Christ is the head, by being part of an organ. And that organ performs its functions to, for the health of the whole. All right, so continuing, though, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. if we'd like to just dash over there. This is referred to in a, in a, very briefly when Paul gives us this exhortation and warning. In verse 29, he says, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, that's not talking about Christ's physical body. That's, not talking about, that's talking about the body of Christ as in the church, the congregation of which you are apart. So all of what I'm describing now, this business about the head and the body, and we could go on at length on that, is essentially this, this abstract concept which Christ is the head, we are the body. The early Greek theologians decided to call this the hypostatic union, a phrase that meant more to them than it does to us. But it's, it, it's, it's a concept and it's a word and it's a term and it's an idea that helps us get this into our head that, that we become part of this group of which Christ is the head. All right, moving along rapidly. Let's go to the function of the Lord's Supper. The participation now in, in the Lord's Supper, participation accomplishes what? What does it accomplish? Well, as I've already indicated, it's a renewal. So we can say that uh, participating in the Lord's Supper is an appropriation of the sacrificial blood of Christ to members of the covenant. It's an appropriation. It's, it's a, it's a twice-annual appropriation, meaning we were, we're going to take, it, take it from here and we're going to put it here. We're going to appropriate it. It's going to be taken from, uh, from one place to the other. And the other is you. That is, it's, it's taken from, from Christ and it's given to us. Now, this is meant to renew and refresh the covenant. That's the whole idea of the Lord's Supper, communion. It's renewing and refreshing this union the union of Christ the head and we the body. Thus, we have the word communion. It is used in Scripture. The union being a joining and the prefix com or co meaning of, 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 of different parts, it, 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 implying this is, a, this is a communal function. All right. So Christ is our head, we are the body. Colossians 1.18 makes that clear. You can, I'll let you look that your, uh, 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 on your own. And this same concept was used by Jesus in different ways when he articulated that, that he was the vine and we are the branches. Now, many of you are familiar with John chapter 15. Jesus discusses at length this same concept. Paul really didn't make up the concept. Paul was just clarifying and, and edifying his readers to the concept that Jesus Christ had introduced in John 15 and elsewhere in which he is the vine, we are the branches. The branches derive their, their strength from the vine. The, the, in the same, the body derives its instructions from the head. All right, so <clears throat> uh, communion is going to renew and refresh us in our covenant relationship. Second, communion is a remembrance. And the word remembrance is very important, very, very instructive, very helpful. It, it's really kind of a good word. Uh, and when we say remembrance, we're talking about history. There's other words are used. Memorial, for example, this is, that's a scriptural word that's used several times. This is a memorial that reminds us of Jesus' death and resurrection in AD 33. It's a memorial, it's a history, it's a remembrance of that particular historical one-time event. So communion is that as well. But it's also a memorial and a reminder that takes us back to the very first Passover and the formation of Israel into a covenant people. So it's a reminder of another historic event that came much earlier, that came some 1,500 years earlier. So in Luke 22, verse 15, Jesus says, uh, I, I've been looking forward to celebrating this Passover with you. This, he says that at, at the time of the communion service, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, he says, with, with desire and passion, I have, I've really been looking forward to this moment together with you gentlemen. He says that to his disciples in the upper room in Luke twenty two fifteen, And he's reminding them, he's telling them, this is this, we're, we're, we're harking back, we're going back, we're looking backward 
to this important event in the history of our people in which we became a nation. It was, it was the foundation of the nation. It was their Independence Day, so to speak. They became a covenant body, not just a, a bunch of folks, not just a big clan, not just a, a bunch of an extended family that was all strung out all over the place. Now we are a, a group with a formalized nation. We are a people. We are a covenant people. And so it's a memorial, a Passover is, of, of, of two historic events that are really both foundational and central to identifying us and helping us move forward in time. So we can read about that in Exodus chapter 12, which I believe we read uh, yesterday evening. So we won't go there. I'll let you look at that on your own time. Now, some different uh, traditions in Western Christianity celebrate the Lord's Supper with different frequency. Some do it very frequently. Some people do it episodically. We believe here that twice annually is the right time timing that's involved. And in my view, the function dictates the frequency of the Lord's Supper, twice annually. So the Day of Atonement is when the blood of Christ is appropriated. It's, it's, it's a formal appropriation of taking the blood of Christ and cleaning up a sinful people, a sinful nation. As a group, we assemble, acknowledge our sinfulness, and we get a fresh coat of paint, so to speak. <laughs> and for a while, we're going to look okay. <laughs> well, it's going to, it's an appropriation of that, and it's that, that would be a, a, a repeated renewal of the covenant. But it's, it fulfills the sacrificial typologies that are found in the Old Testament law, of which there are a number. Then, of course, the day of Passover is a remembrance. It's a memorial. And that word memorial, memorial is used with respect to the word Passover in a couple of different places. And it, that's when we remember and we memorialize Jesus' death. So we have two times, we have two functions, and we have two annual times that this is this unfolds. Now finally, and there are many, many, many things about the Last Supper and the, the communion service that we could discuss, but, and this was alluded to uh, yesterday evening when we celebrated communion. Paul teaches us that there are two twin imperatives that place a member of the covenant under a great deal of pressure. You're stuck between the proverbial rock and the hard place. The Scylla and Charybda. You're, you're stuck between these two places. You don't want to go here, and you don't want to go there, and there's a pretty narrow pathway you've got to get through. You've got to squeeze through, and it's going to take some, some effort and energy and some spiritual thinking and collecting yourself together to get that right. So number one, we cannot continuously abstain from the Lord's Supper. Because participating proves that you have an active faith. It demonstrates that your faith is active. You have, in baptism, you have joined the group. And now you're going to continuously, repetitiously, twice annually, renew that to show that you have an active faith. And that, that's significant and that's important. I mean, if you said, I want to be a Cub Scout, and you join, and then you never come to any of the meetings... After a while, everybody's like, well, is he part of us or not? So that's not a perfect analogy, but you maybe can get the point I'm trying to drive here. You can't really continuously abstain from the Lord's Supper and say, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an active and functioning part of the group. What, what do you mean, you, you know, I'm not being included? Well, golly, you, you don't show up to the meetings. You know, everybody's like, yeah, okay, is he part of us or is he not? We're a little confused. All right, well, anyway. So you can't not take... <laughs> the Lord's Supper continuously without running into some divine problems, uh, in my view. Yet, on the other hand, if we partake unworthily, as, it, as, we're as, as we are in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 28 through 30, definitely says, look, you can, take, you can partake of this unworthily, and if you do, you may suffer. It can be sickness and death. Some even sleep. Paul says you can even sleep, using that metaphorically, that word. 
So if we partake unworthily, we can suffer sickness or death. So we really are stuck between, well, I've got, I, mu- I really got to participate, but if I participate and I'm in a bad relationship with Christ's body, that is, the body of believers, and, my, and also my relationship with God is, is damaged, um, it, it could be bad news. All righty, so I've moved pretty quick. <laughs> and uh, we've looked at some of the primary ideas associated with uh, commun- the communion service and the Last Supper that Jesus performed. Now, what I'd like to do is shift gears. So, gentlemen, uh, where's my son? Yeah, I've got another handout coming. If you could put that out. Now, this one you don't have to fill out. For the second portion of our Bible study, we're going to shift gears a little bit here, and we're going to look at some of the events that are connected in this period of time between the Lord's Supper, between the Last Supper, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now what you're getting is just a, a timeline. It's a, it's a chart. It, I, I did not develop this. I didn't create this chart. But it's, it's pretty good. I, I would do make a few things a little bit different on there if I was doing this myself. But it'll kind of give you a thumbnail sketch of what the events of this Passion Week are like, what they've been, uh, historically speaking. And we here at this festival this week are going to try more or less to follow this timeline as we have our services. And so some of the Bible studies and the sermons you're going to hear, maybe you may be able to kind of, kind of sort of fit them in on this timeline that I'm passing out for you. Now... <clears throat> It turns out that in the year that Jesus was crucified, the 14th day of Abib fell on the 6th day of the week, the day of the week that we today call Friday. Since that time, and of course if you know anything about the calendar, you know that the days of the week and the days of the month, they don't all match up, so it's different each year. Do you know like in the sense that July 4th this year might be on a Monday, next year might be on a Thursday or whatever it is. In that same sense, the, the 14th day of Abib, the day of Passover, and then following the days of unleavened bread from the 15th of Abib onward, those are going to fall on different days of the week in different years. And the year that Jesus was crucified, it so happened that the 14th day of Abib fell on the sixth day of the week, the day we call Friday. All right. Now, this year, right now, 2022, it doesn't fall exactly like that. We're one day off. All right. Nonetheless, we have decided, even though we're one day off, we're pretty close. So we thought, all right, we'll just kind of follow the timeline a little bit this year, and it might be a value of us to sort of walk through some of the events that are unfolding between Jesus, uh, the Last Supper, and the crucifixion, and those important events, and the resurrection. So, if, if you'd like to cast your eye on the, the handout was, that just came your way, this Passion Week timeline, this is organized and oriented for a modern reader. Bear in mind, in, the, in Bible times, and scripturally speaking, a day begins at sunset. The sun goes down and the new day begins. We have the evening and the morning. And the day comes to an end the following 24 hours later when the sun sets and a new day begins as darkness comes on. All right, so that's the biblical concept of the day. Now, this is not lined out that way. This is created for modern minds who don't think that way. But nonetheless, it's trying to peg things out in a way to help you just organize the highlights and the events that unfold. So it's, it's a pretty good schedule, and it's got the days of the week that we're familiar with. There was no, they didn't call the first day of the week Sunday, and they didn't call the sixth day of the week Friday. Those are days, names for the days that came much later in a different time, in a different era, which is another story. But that's what we're used to using, and so we got to kind of keep a foot in both worlds as we work our way through some of these types of issues. Now, this is not meant to be a study about the calendar, which is 
complicated and confusing and quite frankly for about 90% of you would be very dull and the other 10% would be fascinated intently. But this is not that. So what we're really trying to do is look at some of the, the highlights and some of the concepts that are involved with the Passion Week and we're going to have to look at one particular point, take a few minutes to, to address. So you'll see though, as you look at this timeline, you'll see that on what is historically called Good Friday, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of things happening on that day. Now, in terms of the days of the week, today is what we call Friday. All right? In, so, however, <laughs> in 33 AD, uh, uh, Friday was the 14th day of the month of Abib. We are now on the 15th day of the month of Abib, so we're actually one day off. But if you, if you didn't follow what I just said, and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't know track, that's okay, just, just forget it. For those of you who do, you're okay, we're good. We can talk about it later. <laughs> so no, don't worry about it. The really thrust of what we're trying to do is just sort of get the, the chronology down of, of what's happening here, all righty? So let's uh, sort of set this aside. And so uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. And returning to our, the primary outline that I prepared for this Bible study, let's go to the back page. And let's look at the communion and the Lord's Supper because <clears throat> this initiated a rapid cascade of historic moments that unfolded in, in the next 24 hours and the next 48 hours. There's just an awful lot of events that are occurring. Now the two highlights, of course, are the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it turns out the year that Jesus Christ was crucified, he celebrated his Last Supper and his Passover meal in the early hours of the 14th day of Abib, and in the fading hours of the same biblical day, the 14th day of Abib, he was crucified. So he ate of the Passover meal in the early part, which was earlier than usual, but not biblically incorrect. And then he became the Passover lamb himself in the waning hours of the 14th day of Abib. All right. Now, there's a little controversy that flares up once in a while about when did Jesus die. And essentially, it sometimes is called the Wednesday-Friday debate. So I'd like to take a few minutes and just address this Wednesday-Friday debate. The question is, how long was his body actually in the tomb? Now... The Wednesday argument, which is a minority opinion, the Wednesday argument is built from Matthew 12, verse 40. If you care to turn there, you can. And this, it goes like this. Jesus said, earlier in his ministry, he said, I'll start in verse 39, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the argument uh, for the, in favor of the Wednesday thesis, the Wednesday theory, says, hey, look, uh, you got three days, you got three nights, you know, you got 24 hours, 24 times three is 72. So they're going to argue, really, you got to have three full days and three full nights. You got to have 72 hours. Jesus is 72 hours in the tomb. That's the basic idea. And they use this particular passage, Matthew 12, 40, as the springboard. And then, you know, to support that theory, they're going to say, look, we could just go to Jonah. And if you, we went to Jonah chapter 117, it says he was in the whale's belly three days and three nights. And so I say, hey, that's three days, three nights, that's 72 hours, that's, that's what you've got to have. And so that must have been what happened to Jesus. That theory creates a lot of tension with the rest of Scripture. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's a, it, in my opinion, this is not correct. I'm going to try to articulate why it's not correct. First of all, and I didn't really put this on the outline, I think the sign of Jonas is not about the time, exact time, and looking at it. The sign of Jonas is that Jonah appeared to be dead. He, he seemed to all practical observers, he was swallowed by this great creature. He was gone. He was dead. And then he came, whoop, he, he was spit up on a beach and he was alive again. That's the sign of the prophet Jonas. The sign of the prophet Jonas is this amazing thing of someone coming back from the dead. That's the sign. 
to unbelievers, the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees, they, that still wasn't good enough for them, as we know. But it ought to have been. That's the sign. All right, now, in terms of this business about three days and three nights and so forth and so on, Throughout the New Testament, we have many passages that refer to the resurrection of Jesus, that refer to his death, refer to his resurrection, refer to him being dead and coming alive again, and they describe it in different contexts. And of these many descriptions, there are associated many different prepositions. Some places in the New Testament says, after three days, some places it says, in the third day, sometimes it says, on the third day, sometimes it says, until... Uh, until the, th- uh, the third day. You know, so it has different prepositions. Now, grammatically speaking, and, and I'm not a great grammarian, uh, but I'm mediocre. My wife might grudgingly concede I'm mediocre in grammar. <laughs> when you look at a sentence, the primary words are the nouns and the verbs. The, the verbs tell you what's happening, and the nouns tell you to whom it's happening, what the action is. Those are the main words. And some languages consist mostly of just nouns and verbs. Hebrew is such a language. Then you've got next, you've got other words that are helpful, like adjectives, which will describe the noun, describe what's happening to somebody. And then you've got the adverbs that describe the action a little bit. And then you've got all the little words. The little words that sort of connect it all together, one of which is the prepositions. Alrighty, so Hebrew doesn't even have prepositions. doesn't even have those little words. Now, Greek has prepositions. English has prepositions. This is all the sort of the connecting tissue. Now, if we really want to focus on the after three days or the on the third day or the in and get hung up on the prepositions, we're, there's, a, there's a danger we've got here because we're hanging our argument on the least important words rather than the most important words. And also we're going to create contradictions because all the after, in, and on, and until don't match up. And so it's a little hard to, to, to connect that thought and say, well, if they don't match up, what's really going on? Well, what's really going on is they, they may not really matter. So if I say to my son, hey, look, if you work hard in three days, I'm going to buy you a pizza. Or if I say, hey, son, if you work hard after three days, I'm going to buy you a pizza. Well, have I really contradicted myself by saying in three days or after three days? Probably not. And we don't need to create a contradiction by saying, well, wait a minute, is that the third day or the fourth day? It's really not that complicated. So, let's not get hung up on prepositions is my suggestion. Now, let's move along on this study here a little bit. Now, I believe the Wednesday theory is well-intended, but it is a rather recent theory. It does not have a long historicity going back many hundreds of years. I think it was developed in the 1800s. Um, I think it was honestly developed by people with good intentions. I just think there's some, they made a mistake. The pro- one of the great problems, though, is this, the Wednesday theory has a hard time overcoming the passages that are what we could call narrative passages. They're simply, they simply tell you what happened. The narrative passages of Scripture that just tell you what happened describing Jesus' death and his resurrection are pretty simple and pretty plain. So, let's look at three of them very quickly. So let's go to three different Gospels. We're going to start in the Gospel of Luke and and chapter 23. And I'm going to read for you. In Luke 23, I'm going to start at verse... I think I'll start at verse 50. And I'm going to read down a few verses into the very beginning of chapter 24. And just... Let's just read, the, just read the story. This is just a, Luke is just telling us the story of what happened. All right? So beginning in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. It says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. He was of Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never a man was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came after him from Galilee followed after, and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. 
And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher bringing spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher. Okay, well we know the rest of the story here. So there's a couple of verses they are going to really pretty much pin it down if we just don't strain over a gnat. Verse 1 of chapter 24 tells it was the first day of the week when he was resurrected. That's no mystery. The first day of the week is the first day of the week. It's the day you and I typically call Sunday. And then it tells us when he was put in the tomb, when he died and was put in the tomb. And it tells us in verse 54, it says, that day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew on. Now that makes perfect sense. The Sabbath begins at sunset. So the day prior to the Sabbath, customarily called the preparation day, would have been the sixth day of the week, the day we normally would call Friday. And it was in the late hours of Friday, the sixth day of the week, that he was placed in the tomb. And that's essentially what it just says, very plainly. And this makes perfect sense. It's simple. It's not difficult. He was put in the tomb on the sixth day. He was resurrected early on the morning of the first day of the next week. So how does that match up with the other Gospels? Let's go to Mark chapter 15. So if you return with me to Mark 15, I'm going to start at verse 42 and read down a little bit into chapter 16, and we're going to see how that, this matches up. All right, are you ready to go? Mark 15, starting at verse 42. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly into Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if, if he were already dead, and calling unto him the centurion, asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen which was, and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone into the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph behold where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. So we have between verse 42 at the beginning and verse 2 of chapter 16, it, it tells us exactly the same thing. It tells us in verse 42, the even was come. It was the preparation the day before the Sabbath. They were, they were getting ready for the Sabbath. That had to be the day right before the weekly Sabbath. And then the first day of the week, the day we know is Sunday, he was resurrected from the dead. Finally, John chapter 19. We'll just touch base real quick here in the Gospel of John. John 19 tells us the same story. And I'll just look at a couple of verses here. It's kind of spread out. But John 19, verse number 31, goes like this. It says, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And then verse 1 of chapter 20 says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene, so we know that. There, there we go. So we've got the Sunday resurrection, or the day we call Sunday, the first day of the week. And back in verse 31, it tells us that this was the preparation day before the Sabbath. And it tells us that that particular Sabbath also happened to be a high day, which tells us that that Sabbath day was the 15th day of a bib, which meant the preparation day, the day right before it, the day we call Friday, was the 14th day of the month of bib. And you say, well, why would that be significant? Well, the main point of, of, of being mentioned by John, why he even mentioned that, that was because the, the, the Jews that wanted Jesus dead, they wanted to get it done and over before the festival began. That was the main point. This was a troublesome person, and they didn't want this big festival. Jerusalem is crowded at the days of fest Passover and Unleavened Bread. It was a huge annual celebration. All these big 
these people were coming in droves to the city. It was like a, you know, a huge week-long shindig. And they wanted the whole thing to be done and over with and Jesus to be dead and packed away and gone and out of sight before the festival really got underway. That's why the Gospel of John tells us that that Sabbath happened to be a high day because it was significant that particular year. If it had fallen a little differently, they might not have this particular problem on their hands. If they could have gotten rid of Jesus at a less politically charged time when the city wasn't crammed with people... It would have been easier for them. But, you know, they had to deal with with the circumstances they were. All right. Moving along really quickly, I'm going to have to kind of pick up the pace here. Um, The weight of Scripture now tells us that Jesus rose the third day. And you really can only get the third day. You you can't get your 72 hours in if you are on the third day. It takes you into the fourth day. So that's, that's really a problem with the Wednesday theory. And it makes sense because ancient counting systems actually are inclusive of the two ends. We are inclusive of one end. When we, do, when we count from here to there, we count the, the other end. It's because we, in brief here, we have a concept of zero that we're very comfortable with. Zero, strangely enough, wasn't a, it wasn't utilized in counting systems in ancient times. And so they were inclusive of both ends, and so it's easy to get three days, or the third day, when you have part of this and part of that, and one in the middle, you got one, two, three, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You've got your, you've got your one, two, and three, and you've got the three days, and that's what you need, and that's biblically uh, the, the correct position, in my view. So, you say, well, how do you get around then, Mr. Benson, this business about the Matthew 1240 and the three days and three nights? Well, that is, in short, an idiom. It's an expression. If I had more time, and you can look this up on yourself, in 1 Samuel 30, there's a little story dealing with David and the life of King David and a fellow they found. And in Esther chapter 4, you can look this up, and chapter 5 of Esther, you'll see that that phrase is used, those words are used to describe what is a, 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 a quote-unquote three days and three nights, and really it's a one, two, three situation, part of one, all of the middle, and part of the third is still three days and three nights, idiomatically speaking. All right. So Jesus died and was buried late on a Friday afternoon, the day we call Friday, and he rose on Sunday morning. So, (laughs) back to this. (laughs) We've got a lot of events on that day known as Friday. And some of the Bible lessons that are going to follow this one are going to be talking about some of those events. At least I I think they will be. I'm not sure exactly what what these fellow gentlemen are going to speak of when I follow, but some of them are going to be discussing these things to some degree. And so, um, and and some of the, you know, theological concepts associated with them. And so you might, this might be a value. You might stick in your Bible and try not to lose it through over the next three or four days, and it might be helpful to you. All righty. Now, as we, as I kind of move toward the end of this particular Bible study, there's a few further thoughts I'd like to throw out for your reflection. As we work our way through the events of these couple of days here, one of the things that comes to mind and that's really kind of important to reflect on some, and that's the trials of Jesus. Now, Jesus basically had two trials. He had one in the middle of the night at the high priest's home, and then he had another one before Pilate. The first one before the high priest, the high priest, they were eager to put him on trial, eager to get that trial over with, eager to get it done quick and have a, 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 a render a judgment that says we got to put this guy to death. It was in the middle of the night. It was a rigged trial for sure. The second one before Pilate, more like a, not really a trial, more like a hearing, but the second one before Pilate, Pilate really didn't even want to have to deal with but he was compelled by the politics of the time to deal with it. And that one also went against Jesus, as we know. But there's at least two lessons that come from that, that I think you and I could think about in our circumstance right now today, in the, in the life that we live here in our nation, in our society, in the towns and the communities that you and I live in, that we can think about. Number one, the pressure to be politically correct to preserve yourself is far from new. Political correctness is not a new problem. 
It's an ancient problem. It's a continuous problem throughout the relations of human history. At sometimes it's crazier than other times. And it seemed to be pretty crazy in the times of Jesus. Just like it's kind of crazy right now. It's not a new problem. If you feel like, wow, what a crazy world I live in with all this political correctness and these new weird pressures that come upon me, you are not experiencing something that others haven't as well. Second, when justice is politically costly, those with legal authority usually fail. They usually fail. Like the old slogan, judges are politicians in robes. There's some truth in that. It's maybe a little bit of a bitter truth and a little angst associated with that, but there is a lot of truth, and often it takes a very courageous judge who's willing to put up with a high personal cost at times to deliver justice. And sometimes that cost is so expensive to them personally that they're going to often fail. It just happens frequently, and it shouldn't necessarily surprise us when it does. Even if it distresses us, don't be too surprised. It happened to Jesus, and it continues to happen in our time. Next, Jesus was very passive. As we listen to our Bible studies in the next couple of days, we're going to perceive that Jesus was passive in his defense. He didn't didn't say, I'm innocent, and here's the evidence. He didn't didn't lay out a big defense for himself. Now, we know many of the reasons why that he was so passive during this period of extraordinary abuse. Basically, all happened on this busy day that you and I typically would call Friday. But his passivity during that period of extraordinary abuse teaches us much about suffering. Suffering is one of the great problems of human experience. Anybody with some age on them has experienced some suffering. Some have experienced considerable, considerable suffering that just seems extremely unjust and unfair. I can only tell you that it's a feature of life. And that Christ, studying the life of Christ and the events of his life, particularly the events on the, that precede his crucifixion, can give us some insight and wisdom and maybe a little encouragement as we work our way through this tough reality of life called suffering. We can't completely avoid it. Next There's a little bit that I think is interesting about the Sabbath day that's sandwiched between the two great events. We have all this activity on the day we call Friday, and then we have the resurrection on the day we call Sunday, the first day of the week. And in between we have this Sabbath day, and nothing happens. Nothing. Nothing happens. Jesus is in the tomb. Well, there actually is a little bit happening theologically there. I think Brother Seth might address that. I'm not sure. Is that right, Mr. Seth? Mr. Merritt? But... That's, but in terms of what seemed to be happening on the ground in Jerusalem, nothing was happening. Now, was there really nothing happening? Well, in terms of action, that is probably true. But in terms of what's going on in the heads of the people involved, I believe there was a lot happening. There was a lot happening between the years, particularly the disciples. They were supposed to go home and rest. Now, In their culture and society, resting on the Sabbath day was taken very, very seriously. Very seriously. More serious than we keep, we are today, tend to to, to believe. In fact, many of them followed a lot of these rigid rules that really aren't necessarily exactly biblical, but they had extra rules piled on about how many feet you can walk and how many steps you can take. And maybe they are well-intended. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. That's another story for another day. But they were rules that they customarily followed to help them work their way through how do you define rest, right and proper rest. So because of that Sabbath day enforced rest, that custom, their own habits, a lifetime of habits imposed upon them, they had to suppress several impulses that had to be present by a force of their will. They had two impulses that I see probably were 
I'm, I'm convinced were present, in their minds. Number one, fleeing Jerusalem made a lot of sense. Running away made a lot of sense. If you understand the context and the historic moment, it made a lot of sense for the disciples to say, they just nailed our leader to the cross. We need to get out of town. As if your leader suddenly was put on the electric chair, you'd say to yourself, I need to be scarce. I need to get out of town. Now, fleeing Jerusalem made a lot of sense, but they couldn't because the custom of the Sabbath says you can only go so far. <laughs> you can't run away. Second, some of them probably had an impulse of action. In fact, the high priest expected them to hatch a plan of action. The high priest expected them to come along and steal the body of Jesus. They expected a plot from the disciples, for the disciples to go to their homes on the Sabbath day, hatch a conspiracy behind closed doors and windows, and come out when the Sabbath was over with a plan to steal the body, which, of course, they didn't do. Now, many of them, I think, were inclined toward action. Peter was a man of action, and it must have been really hard for Peter to sit on his hands all Sabbath day and just do nothing but think. I doubt if they really rested and slept and relaxed. Do you? I doubt there was much real resting and relaxation. While their bodies were motionless, their brains had to have been buzzing at intense speeds. So this resting on the Sabbath forced the disciples into this inaction, this period of intense thinking. And I think that was actually very good because it forced them and pushed them toward a sense of faith and trust. It reoriented them out of their impulses to run or to fight. No flight, no fight. And forced them just to sit and think. It, it suppressed their impulses. Now, that's a lesson for us. Impulses usually get you into trouble, following your impulse. I would suggest that we learn in our lives on a practical basis to think more and not act on impulse. Impulse typically gets us into trouble, and it would have gotten them into trouble, I believe. Finally, in closing... The resurrection, of course, proves with absolute certainty the divinity of Jesus. And this last point is one we take for granted. It's one that's plain. It's one that's obvious. It's one we celebrate. It's one that we've heard of since we were small children. In fact, we, are, we have heard that Jesus is divine so many times. We absorb it at such a young age that we don't even think about the magnificence and the wondrousness of Jesus' resurrection and the divinity that is proved therein. It's something that we need to keep in high profile and not get lost in the shuffle. Amen. Thank you for your time. God bless you, and may this time together at the festival uh, be just, just wonderful for every one of you. God bless you. Amen. Thank you.